Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by USA-primed Frederick's Canvas. Supporting artists for 150 years, primed in Atlanta, Georgia, with the widest variety of primed and unprimed cottons and linens on the market. I've been using Frederick's for a long, long time, and it's always been a great canvas to work on in the studio. You can find Frederick's in your local art store or at frederick'sprintcanvas.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Meisha Mohammadi is an artist who lives and works in Los Angeles, California. She received her MFA from California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Her recent exhibitions include her current show at Nikhil Boshan in New York, 1430 in Portland, The Lodge in Los Angeles, and Lowell Ryan Projects in Los Angeles, and she has an upcoming solo show at Halsey McKay Gallery in Long Island. Her work has been featured in Art Slant, Artillery Magazine, Flaunt, Make Magazine, Hyperallergic, The LA Times, New American Paintings, and many more. I caught up with Meisha from her home in Los Angeles for a chat about converting the garage to a quarantine time studio, studying science, choosing art in life, white satin, and more. Here's our conversation. self-sufficient is a godsend yeah that's that's great and it, i'm ga- gathering you have a little outdoor space and you have some i mean that's kind yeah. of like nice perk. yeah here i have my outdoor that's like our side yard nice yeah that's all you need we yeah, have like a patio and and I, that's basically like two foot by 12 foot you know that's so hard. So do you guys go out every day or do you do walks or what's no, your... We no, haven't been out in over four weeks. So you literally don't leave except for groceries? Nope. Delivery. Oh, okay. We're being, model, you, we're being model citizens here. But are you... <laughs> you're allowed to go for a walk, right? <clears throat> I think, yeah, you can go for a walk, but um, I don't know. If the way I feel about it is if you're going to go 90%, like, why not go the right. whole nine yards? Right. Because we could, there's so many people around that you could walk outside and someone could just, That's like, true. cough I'm on not, your face. I'm not thinking in terms of city city terms. Yeah, you can't, you can't sort of avoid people here. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. I mean, even in the building, you're going to see people. And right. Yeah, so we're just like, well, we're rolling with it. That's hard. That I feel like that's a completely different psychological construct than what, I am going through because I leave all the time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm cool with it though. I'm kind of hermetic. I like it. I kind of like just being in. That's good. Yeah. And like, I don't need, feel that need to get away from my family or like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't get cabin fever really. I'm fine with it. That's lucky. That's super lucky. And like, I don't really like people, so it's nice. So I don't have to see, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, you have two podcasts and you're a professor and you don't like people. (laughs) Wrong choices. No, I'm just joking. But, but you know, in the city, bumping into people, it's sometimes like I'm always on the run. Like I teach in Pennsylvania and Uh then I'm commuting back and forth and it's just like, I feel like I'm before this happened we just running around like crazy all the time and it's nice to just not it's like one giant thing to check off the list of like okay we're not we're not doing anything outside i i i know that feeling i I mean we're approaching week eight for us that we've you know we're basically on lockdown aside from my going out all the time but um (laughs) We're approaching week eight, and I had that huge relief as well, in a sense that I could kind of like cut out a lot of things I didn't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> it was so nice. Yeah, it simplifies. I mean, we're. I mean, how many times have you heard it in the last few weeks of of people saying like, "This is kind of forcing us to slow down," mm-hmm. you know, and Absolutely. take some things off the plate because everyone's got a million <clears throat> things on their plate. 
Absolutely. And I, I think I see it so strongly. I see it so strongly in my kids because they started playing differently. So the yeah. way their daily life is structured is much like how my childhood was in the 1980s. So, you know, they find an old vitamin bottle and entertain themselves with that for two hours making up games or uh, just random things they find in the garage, they'll play with it. And they never used to do that stuff before. Yeah, they might actually grow up to have a fertile imagination. Exactly. (laughs) I know. I mean, that part of it I noticed on week one and I was just like thanking God because I always wanted that for them. Yeah. And to see them act that way and evolve and adapt so quickly to the changing terms was really uplifting. Yeah, I feel, do you have that sort of like yin yang, positive, negative? I I feel guilty that, you know, this is something that's obviously really affecting people hard and it's Mm -hmm. not an easy thing, but I I see good and bad in it, you know? I do too. I I mean, I think for, for me, the very first week, this word came into my head, which was rupture. And I feel like that word it can be positive or negative or just neutral. And that I've carried that with me throughout this these eight weeks. And I feel like it so encapul- encapsulates how I feel about this. It's this rupture and so much good can come from rupture, like a rupture of old systems and rupture of everything we've understood of how society operates and you know class systems and all these things. Um, it's kind of obliterated and destroyed on a certain level, yeah. which for some people is really bad and for a lot of people is really good. So I definitely have that yin yang thing you're talking about. Right. It's like if your place catches on fire, it's and you have to throw all your crap out the window, it kind of sucks, but you're gonna clean house. Like you're gonna start you right. know what I mean? There's gonna be some things that that you're forced to kind of uh deal with that you would sweep right. under the rug forever. You know? Which we literally went through that a year and a half ago for the Woolsey fire. So Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So we had to evacuate and we had just bought our house. So a month after that, we had to evacuate and for uh, several weeks and thinking, you know, our house could burn down, but it didn't. Um, so I feel like this kind of natural disaster vibe is ever present in the last couple of years for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, being out there, I think it's, it isn't, you know, earthquakes and fires just seem to be ingrained in the psyche of everyone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys have what? Hurricanes? Uh, I guess. I mean, there was Sandy. It's not like a super prevailing thing in, in New York City. Um, I think we just have New York City. <laughs> I know. It can be. I feel like I love New York, but I can only last like five days there, Max. <laughs> it can be its own natural disaster. <laughs> yeah. It's your, so exhausting. It really is. It's it's not for the, the Even when I heart. when I visit and I hang out with my friends who live there, they walk so fast. Like by ten o'clock I'm just wiped out. I can't even keep up with them. Yeah, well, it's been a while since I've been to L.A., but when I, I remember the last time I was there, I, I had that really annoying feeling of that I had to quell that I wanted everyone to like be faster about things. Yeah, it's Which is love. so stereotypical, but like, <laughs> you would be at like a little breakfast cafe or something, and it was just so <clears throat> slow. I was like, come on. Right, and and yeah. I'm not even in a rush. It's like when right. I drive outside of New York City, I'm, I'm in a rush for no reason, just out of like <laughs> habit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so you said, you know, growing up in the 80s, you had a little more time to be, um, you know, imaginative or mm-hmm. a little less um, busyness in your in technology and all that stuff. So what was it like growing up? Were you were you a drawer? I was a drawer. Um, I'm from L.A. originally. I was born in L.A., but mainly I was raised in San Luis Obispo. Do you know where that is? I have no idea. Where th- it sounds like a Bugs Bunny location in a cartoon. Yeah, it is. It's. <laughs> it may have been. Um, it's a. It's a small coastal town, like college town, halfway in between San Francisco and L.A. Okay. Um, so 
very college vibe surfers, very white kind of farming community. And um, my parents moved there because they wanted to give me this small town upbringing. And they owned a, a fast food restaurant, like a fried chicken restaurant, but not mm-hmm. KFC. Right. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I just, I had that kind of country girl upbringing. I walk, I just adventured into the fields. I collected things. I remember one of my earliest memories, which is really horrifying, was when we first moved there, we were in this condo for a while. And, you know, there's kind of like all the children from the complex (laughs) kind of congregate. And now I look back and I know the word for it. One was definitely a sadist. And he was maybe like one year older than I was. And I remember he would take these frogs and there were frogs everywhere. And he would just like throw them down on the ground and kill them. And then he led me out into the field one time and there was this like dead dog. I don't know. It was just like that kind of crazy, dark country upbringing where you just see weird things sometimes, but you had this absolute freedom also. Um, I drew a lot. Um, My mom is, she paints and draws as my grandmother also did. Um, So I was very creative and all my friends were creative. So we'd always come up with these weird games I mean so many weird games just bizarre games and we had a camcorder so we'd record all these like weird tv shows I think we had talk shows like Sally Jesse Raphael you know (laughs) recreate those and had Michael Jackson on and you know all these kind of we had jazzercise videos it was just we just did that stuff all day yeah what did uh what did mom paint Um, She painted kind of these landscapes. Um, So both of my parents are from Iran. My dad came here in the 60s and my mom in the 70s and they met here. Um, So they're kind of these uh, symbolic landscapes that represent the U.S. and Iran. And there's bodies of water and like these architectural forms that are very Middle Eastern looking um, horses, that kind of thing. That's cool. Did she do that just for, I mean, did she study that or did she? She was an interior design. She, she was an interior designer and then did that as a hobby. Nice. Yeah. They sound like they would be good. They are good. They're really yeah. interesting. And I think um, now I'm looking back at them with greater appreciation. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that must have informed your, you know, your eye and just your upbringing of seeing creativity firsthand like that. The thing I got most from seeing her, I believe, was witnessing that calligraphic line that is very present in Persian miniatures and just the Farsi script itself. I'm the type of artist, I actually have to be really careful about what I look at. I don't look at that much art because I'm the type of person when I look at something, my hand knows how to do it. So I think in terms of that line, seeing that as a child, I just knew how to have like a very elegant and delicate line from a young age, even in my writing. And so I think that impacted me the most. I I think in terms of kind of taking myself seriously as an artist, because she was an artist, that didn't occur because it was a hobby for her. And I never got the sense that being an artist was a viable career. Well, fortunately, you didn't really have to worry about that part of the equation until much later, you know? Right. But I think those early experiences, they, I mean, I feel like I spent many years uh, teaching myself that it was okay to be an artist. So I, I don't know. In a way, sometimes I think I lost some years there. Right. Well, are your your parents are they still around? Yeah, they're around. And, and they are they proud of what you're doing? They are proud. Um, I think I'm an only child, so there's a lot of attention on me, and there always has been. Um, and they see that this is what I have to do, so there's kind of no question. <laughs> but I had an entirely different career originally, so that transition was. I think a little bit shocking for them to move from what I originally studied to saying, I'm going to be an artist now. Right. Was that, uh, were you a stunt person in movies? (laughs) I wish (laughs) I might be going in that direction. Actually. I just acted in my first film. Oh really? Yeah. Um, 
No, but I probably wouldn't do stunts. But I'd like to do more acting. It was really fun. No, I originally studied science. So I used to be a neuroscientist when I mm-hmm. when I first got out of college. My degree was in cognitive science. And I started a PhD program in neuroscience. And just when I started that, I realized I did not want to do that. And it became clear to me that I wanted to be an artist. So Yeah, that hits fast, doesn't it? I was in pre-med my first semester. Oh, you I, get it. Okay, yeah. And I was in a class with... Uh, you remember the show Doogie Hauser? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a class with, like, all Doogie Hausers. Oh, my God. And I, I just knew within, like, a week. I, I like, knew I within a week, too. Me. I think... I mean, I don't know if you had a specific aspect of it that was um, unappealing to you, but for me specifically, the questions became so narrow, like... For six years, I was going to have to study this very specific neural pathway. It just seemed so boring to me. All my big questions had to go out the window. Yeah. Um, I mean, for you, what what was it? I think it was the feeling that um, just in that, the, the beginning of it, you knew that it was such a heavy thing. Like, if you're going to be mm-hmm. a surgeon, you're going right. to really have to dig deep in this, you know. And I just didn't, my heart wasn't that interested in it i mean at that point now looking back i kind of wish i did it but i feel like i would have i find that stuff really interesting now that Mm -hmm. that boat has sailed out to sea and i see it out there and i'm like oh it'd be nice to be on that boat but yeah i just i wasn't in it into it and i felt like if you're going to be a doctor you probably should be pretty interested (laughs) absolutely i understand that feeling yeah I, i only went into it because i did well in AP biology in high school and I, you know, and I got accepted. So it wasn't like uh, something that I thought I really want to do this, Uh but everything else in my life was creativity. You know, it was like music, it was skateboarding, it was like drawing. So it, I didn't put it together at that point. I just knew I had to get out of there. That, that classroom was going to kill me. (laughs) I felt exactly the same way. That's so interesting. Well, it's good that we figured it out sooner rather than later. Well, I got lucky because I had my parents growing up had no money. We, my dad was like the first one to go to college and he went for a year or two, I think. And there was just no expectation. It was kind of like, Mm. do whatever you want to do, do whatever you want to do. Just do it really like work hard at it. That was kind of the, the mentality. So when I switched from medicine to art, they were just fine with it. You know, they were like, okay. Oh, that's so lucky. I feel like I had so much, I mean, it's not like they ever said anything, but there's this kind of first generation pressure, um, on the child, (laughs) you you know? Um, and of course when I decided they were happy for me, but I put all this pressure on myself, you know, um, it was kind of a scary choice. Yeah. I mean, the grand irony of those expectations I think are it's nestled in this desire for, you know, your children to be able to sustain themselves and be mm-hmm. comfortable. But really, if you're really looking out for them, you want them to do something that they love and that they are, you know, inspired by. Because then right. that's, I think that's real fulfillment, not just a big fat paycheck. I agree. And I think I was thinking about it last night, kind of because I knew we were going to have this conversation, just reviewing sort of in general, my choices, you know, from high school through college and beyond. And Oh, no, I did that to you. <laughs> well, because I had listened to three episodes back to back, and I was like, okay, he's probably going to oh, ask boy. me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was thinking at that time, you know, in the 90s, we just didn't have the language, like everything you're saying right now about how to raise a child, like I didn't have that language around me at all. Yeah. Like, there was no conversation. I just kind of had to look around me and look at the professions like doctor, scientist, nurse, teacher, like really basic general things. Pick one. You know, artist was on the table, but that was just way too scary for me. Um, there was no one kind of having those conversations like do what's important to you and longevity, like all these things you're saying, that just wasn't part of the way people talk to their kids unless you were just super enlightened or a psychologist or something. Yeah, it was just that, you know, like, you know, stop feeling bad about yourself and just go out there and do it. Work hard and just go do it, you know. There was no sort of empathy for... But now it might have teetered into the too far into the other realm of the spectrum to where... We're raising, some of us are raising our kids. It's like, it's okay. No matter what, you're just like, 
it's fine. <laughs> you know, I feel like the pendulum always swings too far on the other yeah, side. I wonder Where's that, that too. balance? <laughs> I don't know. I think for me personally, we're very flexible and let, I'm talking about the older one now. The little one's almost four, but right. the seven and a half year old, like we let him lead and make choices about what he wants to do and we'll sign him up for stuff and you know, he makes a kick, like we signed up for baseball and he was just like, this is stupid. Like, I'm just standing here. And we were like, we can't argue with that. It sucks. Like, it's boring, <laughs> you know, and it's really expensive. Right. Um, but I guess my strategy is I'm picking one thing, which is piano. Yeah. And I'm going to make him do that because I think no, he's I think gif- gifted and um, but he can do whatever else he wants. I don't care. Right. Well, there's so many kids who when they become adults they're like yeah i really wish my parents would have like kept me playing guitar because mm-hmm. that would be so cool and or right. taught me their language because at the time they didn't want to learn it but then when you get older you regret that so you know as a parent you're screwed it's like you're damned if you do and if you damned if you don't. yep they'll be annoyed they'll be annoyed with us regardless right yeah it's it's never the ideal situation mm-hmm. <laughs> So, um, well, going into high school, was it, you know, was there a good art class in your school? I mean, was your school big? I'm picturing it's kind of in between the major cities and maybe a little smaller. And I honestly have no idea. I feel like maybe there was 400 in my graduating class. Is that big? That's, I mean, yeah, it's a good size. Yeah. I mean, Um, I think there was 130 in mine. And I lived in, in a city, so... Yeah, I have no idea. I feel like I just don't know that data. Sorry. I know. I thought you were going to say I blacked out during high school. Like, I I forget. I forgot the whole thing. (laughs) I did have good art classes. Um, Again, I was thinking about this last night because I was like, why did I veer so heavily towards my science classes? And I think I'm really motivated by external feedback. Yeah. So I think in my science classes... It was so straightforward how to excel. If I studied, I could get a 98 out of 100 on an anatomy test. It was just so figure outable. Like I understood how to get an A. And when I did well, I was praised. And uh, I remember like our school had a planetarium, which is really weird. Like it had its own baby junior planetarium. And there were a few of us who were just super nerdy and into science. And like, they gave us a key to the planetarium so we could screen movies there and just hang out there. And there are all these special privileges. And I feel like it's just this feedback loop. Like when I got that positive feedback, I felt like, well, this should be the thing I'm supposed to do. And I really loved science. I love, and I still love all the tinkering and the kind of the beakers and the measuring and um, the, the math behind it and all the special privileges. Like we got, I mean, it sounds gross now. I don't think they would allow it now, but we dissected a cat. And I was just so fascinated by that. It felt so special, like this special privilege that we were allowed to do that. In my art classes, so I was in, drawing and ceramics, um, I was so confused about how to get a good grade. I feel like that was such a roadblock for me because I like I would remember I remember distinctly in this class, my drawing class, there was a painting assignment for a still life and I was really happy with mine and I think I got like a B. But there was no explanation. Like I didn't understand why I got the B and um, I don't know. It was just confusing to me. And I think because I think for me, when I'm not good at something or if I'm getting signals that I'm not good at something or getting a good mark, I think that's not supposed to be what I'm doing. Right. Um, and I've grown out of that, obviously. But I think at that time, I just felt like, okay, well, I'm just not getting feedback. And I think for me also, the idea of art, I just didn't respect it. I thought like, I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but I honestly think I thought like, if I went into art, I'd be in this class of people who is more likely to get pregnant out of wedlock or something like that. Like (laughs) I had this like puritanical kind of like, (laughs) 
vibe about it, you know, like if I'd stay in science, I'll be safer in my life. I feel like it was that uh, rigid for me, like yeah. it kind of extended into like a moral scope for me. Um, and I don't know where I got those ideas. Part of it is I never really knew a professional artist, so I didn't know what that looked like at all. I think I just had this vague idea it means you're promiscuous. I really think that's what I thought in high school, probably. You must have seen some movie, <laughs> like The Artist. Yeah, or like <laughs> Reality Bites or something like that. Oh, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. <laughs> but... um yeah, so I really enjoyed those classes, but I don't think I ever kind of fully dove into them. Right. Did you feel like you, and still to this day, I mean, are you someone who likes structure? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a hard thing to negotiate with uh, with being an artist because there's so much kind of free will and, and you know, instability. I mean, I think so. I would argue with that in a, in a way because I think... Like for me, having been through a phase where I was a scientist um, and, you know, worked in a lab, I feel like art studios are very much like a laboratory space. Um, And maybe you're not keeping records of data of how things... Oh, you probably are. Like if you're a ceramicist, you're going to keep a record of glazes and if they've worked and how they've worked or color mixing. I feel like there's a lot of similarity, but... Um, you wouldn't know that till you're in the practice of doing that on a daily basis. I totally agree with you. I think there's so many parallels with like technique too, because mm-hmm. I thought to myself early on, I mean, I, like you, I was in this AP bio class where we did massive dissection. We did cats. We did live frogs. Oh my God. We did <laughs> like rats. We took, yeah. we, we did live rats and took out a kidney. Like we oh, did all God. this crazy stuff, but I thought I'm going to be a surgeon you know, and uh, so much of what I do in my work is really precision based and like using a exacto blade and mm-hmm. cutting and all that. So there, I think there's a lot of similarities, but except everyone else in the world thinks it's the exact opposite. Right. <laughs> you know and I, mean? I You have to, I had, I read, I found this book at the UC San Francisco library. Um, this scientist had written a book about all like several major discoveries, like the t- like different vaccines um, and the scientists behind those vaccines and kind of analyzed their behaviors in the lab. And he came up with all these categories of behavior. And one specifically was all about kind of idiosyncratic actions that are just so custom to that specific person. And that is what leads to these discoveries. So the person is kind of following these specific, these actions that are so idiosyncratic to themselves and their laboratory procedure that they kind of get led to that novel discovery. I don't know if that made sense. But um, I I think that specific thing stayed with me ever since I read that, because that I think is exactly what every artist is doing. So they're kind of getting more every day. They're just getting more and more in touch with that thing that is so specific to themselves and trying to carry that out in some sort of visual form. Yeah. It's interesting because I think, you know, exceptional artists probably have that sort of fire within them to sort of, blaze a path or you know to just Mm -hmm. follow that instinctive uh, curiosity to a point that becomes really interesting to other people because it's on display in a way Mm -hmm. but people like I don't know Bill Gates or you know like people who do really amazing things Steve Jobs or you know they are probably the same type of person and have the same sort of inclinations to be really curious and think outside the box but their creativity isn't really out in the fore it's not sure. visualized yeah so you know they're champion for what the result is business-wise but it's probably the same impetus you know what I mean I agree with that I mean I think computer scientists are some of the most creative people because that kind of thinking is so abstract to and if you actually look at code it's I mean it's really abstract. You have to really, your brain has to move in a lot of different directions to be able to solve coding problems. Yeah. And you have to get lost in it. Mm-hmm. You know, just like in your studio, you just have to get lost in that process. 
So when you graduated and went to school, what was it? I mean, so obviously you went to, for science. I did. So I went to UC San Diego, and I was really excited about that. I mean, total science and engineering school. And I just loved it because I loved the beach, and I'd go surfing and skateboarding and go to the lab. And I was really happy with that. Um, but I, I did have this nagging feeling still at that point, like... I had the fantasy of being an artist. It was always with me. And I remember in my second year, remember the career center? Like you would go to the career center yeah. to like get a pamphlet about a career. The job fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I remember going and learning about the profession of being a scientific illustrator and thinking like, oh, this is like a pivotal moment in my life. Like I could make this choice and I remember looking into it pretty deeply and f figuring out that I'd have to tack on an extra year. And I think I, I went and did sort of a tour of the MFA studios. Like I kind of walked around and I saw one person slumped over on a couch and I concluded that artists are lazy and I don't want to be one. I think that's what happened. Like, nobody was working, so, um, again, I was judging, and it's taken me a long time to grow out of that, um, but I think I just realized, like, that's, I don't, I didn't have the bravery to do that at that time, but it sounded really exciting to me, and so that, I think that was kind of that last moment where I could have made the change, and I yeah. didn't. So yeah, I graduated in cognitive science and then I started the PhD program. And then like you, the first week I was there, I was like, oh, I hate this. Um, but I decided to kind of be prudent and finish out the year. And I had applied for a grant through the National Science Foundation to work in a lab in Japan and I received it. So I did that that following summer. And while I was in Japan, and I mean, this is pre cell phone, pre-smartphone, like, I think Friendster was around. Remember Friendster? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, MySpace was not around. It was, like, pre-that. Um, what year are we talking? Like, the early 2000s? Yeah, so it was, like, 2003, okay. I think. Yeah. Or two, yeah. So I went Where to Japan. Where in Japan were you? In Tokyo. Okay. So... so you probably saw the phenomenon at that point where people were texting on their phones all the time. And yeah. Like, what the hell it, are they doing? Well, it seemed like the future. <laughs> absolutely. It was yeah. the future embodied. So uh, I decided in my head, I thought, okay, I am totally disconnected from everyone because at that point, you know, nothing was connected. And I am going to use these three months and build up my courage to do what I want. And I worked in the lab and I loved it and I experienced Japan um, and I just made paintings in my little apartment. Like I went to the Japanese art store and I bought stuff and I made terrible paintings and my colleagues knew I wanted to be an artist. So they like took me to the museums cause Japanese people are just so generous and gracious and want to treat a visitor with the utmost respect. Um, so they took me to these museums and I just spent those three months like literally trying to change the way my brain worked like this is okay this is okay you're gonna do this and this is what you need to do and then I decided that when I went back I would move to San Francisco and be an artist so that's what I did so it took going to a J Japan to decide to become an artist yeah I used it as a space to kind of deprogram my mind <laughs> Yeah. Or or reprogram, I guess. Right. Did you, uh, this is going to be a weird question, but did you go to Sekaido, that gigantic art store in Ginza? Yeah, I did. And that actually, is amazing. I still have a couple of supplies that have the little label, sticker label. Yeah. So you know Japan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that place is great. Yeah. It's And it's really old. It's been there for a long time, but it's there's like, what, nine floors or something, or more, yeah. maybe more. It's pretty I had, great. I had forgotten about that. It's cool. <laughs> so um, you came back and you were going to be an artist, and San Francisco was the place? Yeah, because I had gone to UC Davis for my PhD program. Yeah. 
So, and I have always loved San Francisco so much, even when I was a kid. So I was like, okay. I mean, that was kind of the biggest city that wasn't New York that I felt like interested in going to. Right. So I moved there and I still had a day job, you know, working in a lab, but I started taking drawing classes, got obsessed with figure drawing, and then eventually applied uh, for my MFA and I went to CCA and got my MFA. So how was that going? Because you didn't have a BFA. I didn't have a BFA, so I was so freaked out. Like, I wasn't good enough. I, I mean, really had a chip on my shoulder for a long time. Like, I'm not really an artist. I'm just a scientist who wants to be an artist. And it made me feel bad for a long time. Um, but I went to SF State and just took classes, like audited classes, and made a lot of good friends and just a lot of drawing, sculpture, and used that work to apply yeah. So, well, when you make this decision, you're like, well, I want to follow my, the instinct to want to make art. Were you at that point, are you looking at a lot of stuff or like, what was your, or were you just making work that was, because when you jump into an MFA, you can't really make class-based work. Like it's, you're doing your own thing. What was right. your thing? Are you asking me how I knew what my thing was if I just switched gears so abruptly? Well, I think, well, it does, I mean, you know, it's not like it has to go that way, but a lot of people, when they're getting their BFA, they go through the gauntlet of like, right. okay, we're going to start with still lives and then we're going to yeah. do some figurative stuff. And then you kind of find your way, mm-hmm. but you kind of went in the deep end of the pool. I think I had some of that when I went to San Francisco state and audited the classes. Cause I did that for two years. Yeah. So well, that's, that's um, a good amount of time. I think that, and I was so invested. I mean, I spent every weekend there just making work, like trying to learn as much as I could. So I don't know. I can't say because I don't have a BFA, but I I do feel like I was behind when I started my MFA. I feel like mentally I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to really dive into my thing. I would agree with that. Um, But I faked it as best I could. You know, well, I, I don't know. There's a lot of people float through their BFA programs and don't. Right. Really, you know what I mean? And there's something to be said for maybe even if you weren't behind, of feeling like, oh, I gotta run really hard here to catch up, and then it yeah. drives you. Although you sound like you're pretty driven, no matter what. Like, I am you- pretty driven, but I always felt like I I was very envious of my cohort, like all the other students, just had this default acceptance that they were an artist I definitely did not have that I felt like I had a lot to prove and that I was not like them I felt very different but then at some point you just felt like oh yeah making art is just something you do and there's no prerequisites really and I feel like that was recent (laughs) I feel like I feel like I've always kind of felt different like I at my core I'm I wouldn't call myself artist until maybe like a couple years ago. I wonder though if most artists feel that deep down. It's like, well, yeah, I'm an, like anytime you say to someone, I'm an artist, there's something a little, I don't know, weird about Now it. I don't. Now I shout it from the rooftops. Like it feels normal to me, but um, I've had that, that twinge of weirdness for a long time. Yeah. Well, that's, it's great that you, you didn't say like three months from now, that's when I'm going to feel that way. <laughs> Cause you seem to be doing pretty well and making some really great stuff. So Thank you. Uh, how, so was the MFA program good? I mean, it must've been. Yeah. I, um, I feel formative. like uh, it was very formative. I had some really great professors and, um, I never wanted to really talk about my work. So I somehow found the professors that allowed me to not talk about it, which was another sign of that I wasn't really ready in that sense. But um, I worked really hard and I made a lot of paintings and um, I'm actually like in the process of organizing and sorting my garage since my studio building is closed. I have to kind of renovate the garage to make it suitable for making work. So I'm going through a lot of these papers from that time. And I mean... The things I was interested in then are exactly the things I'm interested in now. Nothing has changed. It's, and I think I've always known that. I've always had this confidence in the things I was attracted to and knew that those were true and 
just not false. Yeah, that's stabilizing. Whenever you work long enough and you start to feel like um, some things are just intuitive or intrinsic and, Mm -hmm. you know, this must be right because it's just a sensibility. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And you, I think early on when you're getting bombarded with critiques and people spinning you in circles, you you kind of don't know what to believe in or trust or you don't really know what's there yet on the foundation. Mm -hmm. Right. And once, uh, you know, you're at it long enough, you just feel really kind of, you know, comforted by that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Is it going to be nice to work in your garage as opposed to how far away was your studio? I know that's a Uh, time leap right now, but I'm just (laughs) just thinking. Yeah, my studio is not that close, um, but my studio is amazing. So it was kind of like... Also, you have to realize with two small children, I have very little alone time. So my drive was kind of, I would listen to podcasts and it was just, I think a lot of people in LA, their drive becomes kind of this sacred ritual. Yeah. Um, So that was true for me. I didn't really have any complaints about the commute, um, but it's been really cool. I I made most of my show that's up right now with Nikhil Beauchene in my garage during the pandemic. So (laughs) it was really great. It worked. I mean, it was utter chaos and um, it was like this beautiful chaos and I really liked it. That's great. So um, I totally can relate to that because when I drive to Pennsylvania to teach people like, Oh my God, you drive there twice a week. (laughs) Yeah. That four hours in the car is like mind space. Mm-hmm. You know, no, nobody can touch that. You're just going to have to take a really slow walk out to the garage and then deadbolt that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Totally. Will the kids be coming knocking on the door? And- well, everyone is kind of like going through the garage. Oh, right. and then it's a railroad my- studio. <laughs> yeah. And my husband does CrossFit. So there's all this like gnarly, you know, weight equipment. So there are points where. I'm painting, the kids are, they're always screaming and, you know, with joy. I'm not talking about fighting. They're just (laughs) screeching. And then my husband is lifting weights. The Frozen 2 soundtrack is blasting. And it's just like, I am in this like cone of light that I just like, (laughs) I feel like my mind control is so strong because of this. (laughs) Like I can make a painting in the midst of that much chaos. Oh, also just like with the the kind of hellscape of the pandemic in the background, you know. Right, that right. Yeah, yeah. Also, yep. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful escape, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so easy to concentrate on those pictures whenever the entire world's on fire around you. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't know. In a way, I like it because it has this kind of athletic sensibility, like a pitcher on the mound, you know. like Yeah. How good are you? Are you so good that you could actually like strike out that better when you have when you're at like an away game? Like, are you that good? Yes, yeah. I'm that can you, good. Can you tune out that crowd booing <laughs> yeah. at you? Yeah, yeah, that's because there's a high from that. You know, it just kind of ups the ante. It's fun. Definitely. So, um, so let's talk about the work. Like, once you st- when did you feel like your work started really becoming? you know, your work or like to where you felt really, I don't want to say good about it, but like, yeah, you know, I think this is my stride. I may, I, right before I graduated from grad school, I really made the decision to be a quote unquote big painter. So I was like, and that was a time when people were not making that many, like painting was like not popular and not very many people in my program were doing painting. There's a lot of photography and textiles and stuff like that. Um, but I was like, I'm going to make these four giant paintings for my MFA show. And I really like those paintings. And I still stand by those paintings, you know, nine, eight years later or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in, in these last eight years, I've had two children. So I think in a certain way, I've even though I've been such a hard worker, in some ways, I've my evolution has had a different pace to it. So... I love those initial paintings. And then I'd have these kind of like bouts of progression, you know, throughout that eight years, even though I always worked um, on the paintings. So I think the answer to your question is, I think a couple years ago, probably when my littlest one was around two and 
I knew I was not going to have any more children. I think that was a turning point for me to dive in deeper. And I also, I think I had a come to Jesus moment with the work where I knew it wasn't mine. So I think before that I had made this work for me. Yeah. And I think I experienced a shift where I knew this work was not for me. It's meant to not be with me. I'm supposed to make it. And it, again, using that word idiosyncratic, it's idiosyncratic to me and my process and what I'm thinking. But after that, it's for the world. It's to be out away from me. So mm. it has to be good enough to last outside of myself. And that's a different type of painting right there. So I think my work underwent a jump at that point. Yeah, that's and then, a, that realization, yeah. you know, of like, it's almost like, that joke of dropping your paintings off at the galleries, like leaving your kids at school. It's like, all right, go yep. out there and give it your best. You know, <laughs> like it, it's out of yeah. my hands now. <laughs> it feels that way. It's very much like a, it's your creation. It's your child. And, yeah. um, but I would say, I mean, I hate to sound like an asshole, but I think you have to almost feel like you're making Jesus. Like it has to be that good of a child, <laughs> you know, right. like can't just be your regular child. Yeah. You've got to be, you've got to be the second coming. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Point. I just like to go to that extreme place in my head. Like it's kind of just fun for me. Um, but yeah. Well, what's the imagery, like the, the way that your paintings are, you know, constructed in the, the iconography, like how did that come about? I think so. Uh, again, I think I, I started thinking about this in grad school. Like I, I didn't know how to talk about my work at all. My, I did, didn't have a very strong art history language to what I was doing. Um, art historical references were just, is not the way I thought at all. Um, but I did realize that sensation was big for me. So this idea of like pressing onto a hard surface or like, you know, I don't, I don't think people do this anymore, but remember in the eighties and nineties, the back seats of cars, kids would like cover the windows with stickers. Do you oh, remember yeah. that? Yeah. So like that sensation of like getting a sheet of stickers and like covering the car or drawing on your bedroom wall with your toe, with your, like a pencil in your toe or just something weird like that. Like, those kinds of sensations uh, were very important to me, and that's sort of the release I want to have when I'm expressing something onto the surface. And that something could be an emotion or, an, or a more concrete general idea that doesn't have to do anything with me personally. It could be a variety of things. Um, but it all comes back to the sensation, and I still do that. I mean, now... I know how to get in flow so quick because I'm so in touch with what I'm doing. But, you know, I have specific pencils and discarded objects and things I know kind of drag on the canvas, like in this certain way. Um, and it's all about that sensation for me. Yeah. So, and, and you said that you try not to look at a lot of other artists because, or, or maybe that was just early on, this like one thing. I two. still don't. I mean, I look enough. First of all, I look at my friends' work to be supportive and yeah. understand what they're doing. And I look at my peers because this is my trade. I should know what's going on. Um, but I'm, and I love, you know, old masters and all that stuff. Um, but I, I have to be careful about what I look at because I want to make something that feels like it's pure from me alone right. and maybe that's impossible but I'll do my best to try yeah well I think you know the more unconscious you let things flow you would you would hope that it's more intuitive mm -hmm. so we're all a collection of like visually of things that we've seen like you don't mm -hmm. visualize things out of a void but there is something to be said for like an unconscious sort of like you know um, releasing the valve of the unconscious and, and not so much of just pulling from different things directly. So mm -hmm. I, I can definitely see that, um, that desire to not 
have everything in the forefront as far as the visual side of the mind. When you're working, are you listening to music or is it podcasts or, or silence? Uh, uh, never silence, just either podcasts or music. So um, for this show, so typically I'll kind of make a playlist when I know I'm making a show. And a lot of times that just comes from sp- spotify suggestions right the the algorithm knows me very well it's embarrassing (laughs) i'm not like a music person like i don't really know music very well but um yeah so i'll kind of come up with like a loose playlist of like 10 15 songs and then usually there will be a couple songs in there that just really get me and i'll kind of play those on repeat like yeah i just i just use it as a trigger basically to get me started and then podcast. So for this last show, I sent you my pandemic playlist, which I, I made like yeah, yeah, the, first, <laughs> the first week of the pandemic. And um, I really love that song, Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues. <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> it's really, it's a specific vibe. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> um, yeah. So there was, the, there's like this techno electronica version of that, that because Spotify knows me so well. It's so annoying. It came up with this weird <laughs> disco techno version of it. And I was like, oh my God, this is the best song ever. <laughs> and so and my husband would come out and be like, what's going on out here? Like I've heard that song 10 <laughs> times in a row. <laughs> and I'm like stretching canvas with sweat on my brow. Um, so yeah, I, I play that over and over, and then I got really into Russell Brand's podcasts. Oh yeah, Russell I Brand. just love him. Sorry, but I just love him, and his voice is so soothing, and he's just so like off the rails that I don't know. There's something about that that kept me going. Yeah, there's nothing not entertaining about that guy. Like he's he so good. He's so smart. He's so smart too. Yeah, he's sharp. For sure. Yeah. So that's kind of what I do. Never silence. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you're making this work, like when, how much of the work was done before all this happened? I had, so I was working really hard on making work for whatever show I was going to have. So I think for the last six months. So I had a bunch of paintings. Um, And then when this happened, I mean, I think every artist kind of asks themselves, like, or just sort of, I don't know if every, I'll just speak for myself. Um, you kind of imagine your work coming out into the art landscape in this circumstance, right? Yeah. So, because it's it's a different situation now with the pandemic, and especially a week into it when I had the date locked down for this show, I was like, do I make the work? Am I changed by this? Like, can I present the work I'm presenting? Like, will that come off badly? Like, I don't, this is uncharted territory. I mean, and I think the thing, I, you know, I thought about it for a couple of days and the thing that I settled on was, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know how long this is going to last, but I know people are suffering and I can do what I'm good at, what I'm expert at and bring beauty into this world as best I can. And I think the thing that I thought about with this work was I want to make useful paintings. I want to make paintings that in six weeks when people see them, it makes people feel good or brings them some kind of happiness or joy in this hellscape that was my goal so um yeah well how is it i mean because you're kind of negotiating the fact that i mean every person wants people to see the work in person we but we also realize that no matter where we're showing the majority of the people who see the work won't see it in person you know there will be a lot to do so but I mean, this is specific a specific environment where no one's seeing work in person. So right, except that, for my neighbors. That, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the kids. But I mean, it, it, your the work, the tactile nature of it is that right. something that you you feel bad that people don't get to see that necessarily. I don't feel bad 
because I'm so excited to have this show. Um, I'm just grateful to have the show, so I don't feel bad. Um, but I do recognize that... Okay, this is the only analogy I can think of. I love it's analogies. Like, okay, like, if you're someone who really likes chocolate, you'll be happy with a Hershey kiss, even though you know, like, some high-quality chocolate is better. Right. So maybe my work is just satisfying the Hershey kiss level right now because people can't see it, you know? It's a, it's a great analogy. I might have gone with... <laughs> you know, it would be amazing to see Fleetwood Mac in person live, but I'm going to have to go with the cover band. That's good. Sure. <laughs> sure. That's fine. I was hoping I mean, that maybe Fleet, Fleetwood Mac seems like it might be up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> I like Fleetwood Mac. I don't know. For some reason, I haven't really like uh, gotten into it, but I, I should. I, I like it on the radio when it comes on. Well, Knights in White Satin, that, that for some reason knows, that reminds me of Fleetwood Mac. It's a childhood thing. It's a memories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think, uh, I really, I'm not sad. I think that this is such a strange time, and I'm kind of holding out in terms of my emotion. You know, of course, sometimes things get me, and, you know, a, twice I've cried, and... You know, it's a weird time, but it's also so hard to assess what is real right now when you're in it. So I'm just going with it, and people seem really responsive from just images, so I'm going yeah. with that at this point. No, it's great. I, I think it's such a great, that that idea that, you know, we're just lucky to make this stuff and share it. And yeah, I mean, I guess ideally everyone in the world would be able to see your work in person, but I mean, mm -hmm. that's just not reality. So it's just a gift to be able to make it and for people to see it in one way, shape or form or another, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's pretty great. So it's basically just going to be, it's online in a viewing room that people it's can It's in go the viewing to. room, yeah. Yeah, and I think Nikel was one of the first, she seemed to adapt really quickly, like, as soon as this happened, I saw her putting that into motion before a yeah. lot of the other galleries. And then I'm sure you've seen it like just in the last couple of weeks, I'll, like every gallery is now doing that. And it's exciting because like you said, most people do experience shows online. So this is just improving the interface in a way that really democratizes the experience. I mean, in my case, you can even just see the prices there and I mean right. of course I feel a little weird about that being the artist but it would be really exciting if I weren't the artist I would love to see that because you know yeah. usually you have to kind of sheepishly ask for that information right. <laughs> you know if you know you're not going to buy something but you still want to know um, and yeah it it's democratizing everything in this really special way I totally agree and I think it reveals people it reveals situations too because I love the galleries that have probably all you know always had this feeling of like you know artists who show or sell their work online or you know have this kind of negative view about viewing rooms or selling mm -hmm. things over the internet which is ironic because like most art fairs that work is sold before they even ship the stuff to the fair like they're emailing it to collectors and stuff you know what I mean it's just like it's yes. double standard thing so it's it's kind of in a way, like, again, the yin-yang, it's like there's the good and the bad of it, you know, and I mm -hmm. think there's, like, that democratization of, of certain elements of the world we live in is refreshing in a way. Mm-hmm. Agreed. A new, you know, yeah, it's all new territory. Yep. So are you just, are you still, I mean, have you taken a little time, or are you just, I guess you've you've got to turn this garage into a full-on functioning studio or are you already working pretty well in there i was working pretty well in there but um in the last week and a half i really kind of i dismantled this huge storage unit that was there from the previous owner and i have to get it really like in good shape to make the work i want to make so um and i had kind of neglected my children a little bit during those five weeks when i was <laughs> making the show so you know i have to kind of make sure they're you know, 
all children here are being homeschooled. So I had to make sure my older son was doing all his stuff and um, doing some project. I have to teach him how to ride a bike, like all that stuff. I'm trying to do that now. Yeah. Um, and then kind of jump back into some sort of schedule next week. Right. Well, on behalf of a lot of New York City artists who are working on the floors of their small <laughs> apartments, a, a garage sounds so amazing, right? <laughs> I know. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> no, no. Hey, listen, it's, it's, it's been great. Like I'm, I'm, I think to embrace whatever challenge of space you have can really open up doors in your work, you know? Mm -hmm. That's true. I mean, I have felt that way every time I've been pregnant because it changes, you know, how you have to operate and energy level and toxins. And then when you have a new baby and, you know, you have to pump every couple of, all that stuff. It, uh, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine with a young child and we're like, the pandemic is not that different than having a baby. <laughs> like you're kind of just trapped and like the walls are closing in. Like we're used to this, you know? Yeah. You know, it's really funny. You mentioned that too. Cause I, I the, in my last class today, the semester a painting class, we had a visiting artist and we were talking to students mm -hmm. and, um, the artist, we were talking about kids and I said, in a way having kids kind of prepares you for this. Absolutely. Because, it's because your life, <laughs> once you have that kid, your life, it's different. And it, it, nothing will ever be the same. And your whole schedule is completely changed. And your whole relationship to your daily life is, um, is, you know, like what was so important before, after that, it gets, you know, changed. Your right. whole sort of metric of what's important changes. And I think the same thing happened with this. But if you're a kid in college or... You know, if you're a young kid, this is probably that moment where you're like, wait, what? <laughs> right. So I maybe, think about they'll, that, maybe yeah. they'll be ready when they have a kid. They'll be like, all right, I can handle this. This isn't quite so. Probably not, though. <laughs> or will the, they might decide to not have children. They don't want to bring a child into this world seeing this kind of darkness. I don't know. We'll see. I, th I have a feeling in nine months from now, there's going to be a lot of babies <laughs> being born. <laughs> I know. It's true. <laughs> oh my God. Tomorrow never know. Well, we won't know until, you know, there's a lot of things right now that are in flux, but, you know. Right. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, even though there's so much horrifying stuff going on, absolutely. Um, it's exciting, too, that everything is different. I mean, yeah. never before have we experienced this, ever. Right. Yeah, it's like a new, it's totally new. And you feel kind of alive in a way that you're like, okay, it wasn't just the same old thing over and over again, you know? Right. Absolutely. Well, um, good luck with the new, the new studio. Thank you. And uh, the show. And every, I mean, it's been, have you been getting pretty good response? I have. It's really cool because obviously since people can't go to the gallery and see it and also because everyone's online I have been getting a lot more feedback just through dms and emails and um just new interesting people engaging with me um, yeah. who, who I hadn't really spoken to before right. so that's it's been really special I've really enjoyed it it's cool and right it's, and I feel like it's not that different from when you have a show because you go there for the opening and you meet yeah. some people, but you're usually so busy. You only speak to a few people because you can only talk to so many people and then everyone sends you messages. So it's kind of the same deal. You know? It's similar. I mean, I don't know if it's like this for men, but I feel like for a woman, there's all this primping beforehand too. like what outfit are you going to wear? And like, I'm not going to eat that much bread for a few weeks before <laughs> yeah. you laugh, but it's I real. Do the same. No, no, <laughs> like, I do the same. No, I you laugh know. because I'm. I have a shared primping. Uh, <laughs> you know, or like, the carbs you know, for how am I gonna squirrel away this little bit of money so I can get a designer outfit? I don't know. It's so cheesy, but anyways, like I could just sit in my pajamas and keep eating my bread, and um, that part was different. I will say, <laughs> Relax and probably relaxing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty relaxing. But yeah, yeah the show the show's only been open for a week, so it'll be up through May 24th. I don't know when this episode's going to come out, but um, 
soon enough so okay yeah, people yeah. will be able to check it out yeah they can go on the online viewing room and check it out and they can see your stuff on website and instagram i would imagine website and my of choice. yeah website and my instagram feel f- yeah feel free to check that i'm kind of like actually i'm not going to finish that thought i was just going to say it's not like i have a million pictures on instagram but i post a lot in the stories yeah and so. it's just your name is your yeah Mesha mohammedi all right well thanks for taking all this and you were right it did get dark I know. See how? Wow, look we at the talking. sky behind me. That's beautiful. It looks like a James Terrell. I know. It's cool. It's, it's like, really nice. I'll see. Give you like a little sky. Wait. Actually. Yeah. I don't know if you can see it. Anyways. I can. It's a nice yeah. blue. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm totally in the dark in my yard talking to you. Sorry. <laughs> Put you in some strange situations here. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, but thank you so much, Brian. That was yeah, really fun. Thank you. It was great to talk. Thank you.